0: Good morning. We're going to read from John 1 and John 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may may be in them and I in them. Amen.
1: It is good to be back. I feel like I haven't been here, and I haven't. Four weeks in China, a week at a revival conference, and I'm all messed up about that. And my mom's been sick, so a couple weekends there, but it is good to be back here. Um, it's good to do life with Kelly and Howard. Karen and I have been so blessed by you. We're in a life group. Mm, I might start out being controversial right off the bat. Bible studies are not enough. We got to do life together. See, Bible studies are there, and it's a foundation, but it's all about communion and praying with God and in community with each other. That wasn't that radical, was it? But thank you, babe. Oh, you're you're awesome. She didn't create that water. God did, but she brought it. (laughs) Let me pray. And this is a prayer by Tozer, who um, in many ways has been a spiritual father to me. He showed me what faith was. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving Christ. It's looking at Jesus. O God, I've tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to be with thee. I want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that... So I may know thee indeed. Begin a in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise up and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. The Christmas story is told by some pastors. It's probably not true, but it works. Where this couple is driving along, they have their family in the car, and they're looking at Christmas lights, like that city mechanic. What is it? Called? I have never been there because I don't like traffic. And I got enough Christmas lights in my front yard anyway. And they don't, they don't mean anything about Jesus to our culture, do they? There's lights. Well, so they drive up and they do a church drive-by. That's what our world's doing. They're just doing church drive-bys. I know there's drive-bys in the city and drive-bys other places. They just did a drive-by. And the woman turns to her husband and says, Fred, I can't believe this. They're dragging religion into Christmas now, too. Y'all, that is our world. Jesus has been excised, kicked out from Christmas. We don't even use his name in many places. It's Happy Holidays, or there's an X out of the Christ. Have Have you all noticed that? Even in China, they do that. Like, it's amazing. They actually X out the whole thing. But they do celebrate it. God's been doing some stuff in my life lately. Uh, come back from China, some of the guys here that were at Christ's covenant, the first time I came back, I told the church they should fire me. And they did. But it's another story. Uh, not really, but it was close. Anyway, uh, I just, I'm like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And I know we're not a good church. Y'all, I love this church. But we got some ways to go, don't we? I love y'all. But we got some ways to go. And this sermon, actually all year, if Howard lets me, I'm going to really talk about John 17. Actually, I preached on John for five years, took the summers off. I go back and go, that was insane, right? That's like... like, um, Ah, it'll come to me. Preached on Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached on Romans for like, I don't know, 30 years. I want to talk about revival today. Jesus came to make all things new. There's that scene in the Passion. It's my favorite scene. I don't like the scourging scene. It, like, makes me faint. I don't like the cross scene. It's horrific. I like the resurrection scene. But when he's on the ground and his mother is looking at him, and he can't carry the cross, he says, I am making all things new. That's Christmas. Jonathan Edwards is a hero of mine. He's probably the greatest mind, as one non-Christian sociologist said, America ever produced. And he was in the midst of the first great awakening. And he basically wrote down, he wrote a narrative of the Great Awakening, but he wrote five characteristics of it. And here's the thing. Revival, we just sang that amazing song, Kelly, Arise, My Soul, Arise. That's revival. It's when we wake up and get up and focus on him, not us. You know, salvation's good. But all too often when we think of the gospel, we think of us, what God did for us, how God can help us, how God can sanctify us. And we forget that all spirituality, all life, all grace, all power is in him. We need to think more about him, more about the marriage he has in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, more about the marriage that we have with, we're the bride, he's the groom, right? More about the amazing birth and death and life of Jesus and how the Holy Spirit works in and through him to apply everything the gospel to us and how the Father has chosen us before the foundation of the world and what the Spirit's doing even now, loving one another in bliss and happiness in joy and peace The spirit is not worried about Donald Trump. Tom Henry is. The spirit is offended by the lies, and is offended we should be too, whether they come from the Republicans or the Democrats. The spirit is grieved and quenched by the evangelicals that are turning their back on anything moral and not speaking out against the world. Where did you battle with the world anyway? I'm preaching. Let's go back to this. Edwards says this is what he titles the book: the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. Revival is not our work primarily. Y'all, that's good news. Revival's up to us. And but here's the problem: we think it is on a daily basis, when you and I deal with our own sin, our mind is on us, us trying harder, us repenting, us confessing, us believing. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we pray and we seek, like Tozer did, And we ask God to be thirsty. We ask God to change your heart. But it is a work of the Spirit. And we will see that today. Here are the five marks of the Holy Spirit. The distinct, I mean, revival. The distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. Whether it's individually or collectively in a church. Number one, it exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ should be the most important thing that you talk about, well, he is the most important thing you talk about every week, along with the Father and the Son. But you should talk more about Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ than any other subject. If you don't, you need revival. Hear me, hear again that. How many times do you think or talk to Jesus Christ a minute that's one of the questions they ask in the assessment center. Like, how often do you think about God? Every minute or every five minutes, right, if I remember? I remember reading that question going, ah, not, I was pretty convicted. Y'all, seriously, we're not playing games here. If the Holy Spirit's moving you, you're going to talk about Jesus more than any other topic, food, Sex, panthers, eagles, eagles. (laughs) Number one, it exalts Jesus Christ. He will, the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. It attacks the powers of darkness. We are on the offensive. We stand for truth against lies. We stand for unity against disunity. We stand for graciousness instead of petty bickering. I'm, again, thinking of politics. I can't help it. I watched CNN last night. Again, we fight Satan. The Bible said he in us is greater than he is in the world. And the gates of hell not will come against us, cannot withstand the march of the kingdom of God as displayed in the church, as displayed daily in the lives of people. Thirdly, it exalts the holy scriptures. We become people of the word. Now, I believe God speaks in three ways. In creation, in our heart, He leads us. I pray what I should preach. Howard prays what you should preach. The Holy Spirit leads us. But ultimately, the truth, the reality, the way we judge is in the word of God. That's truth. Truth about ourselves, truth about God, truth about the world. So Christ is exalted. Satan is and evil is attacked. The word is elevated. It lifts up true doctrine we begin to understand who God is and all his beauty, and then finally, it promotes love to God and man. The Holy Spirit is the engine that drives us to overflow with love to God and one another. If you can't love people, it's because you're trying to love in the flesh. It's a good thing you're trying to do, but there's no power in it. Love comes from God. You know, um, I have a certain personality sort of problem. It's called ADD. You guys know that. I tell everybody that. So when they sit with me and I'm obnoxious, I get a little break. Okay? And there's a motor going on. Like, it's, it's unbelievable what goes on in here. And I spend time trying to shut that motor down. And often, I'm thinking about doing it. Don't, you know, just don't interrupt, chill, blah, 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 blah. And I try to do self-control by myself. The Holy Spirit, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. So let's look at revival. But before I do, I ran across an evil person recently, really dark through a friend of mine. And I gave him this book called People of the Lie. Because if revival's this, what is evil? They mirror one another. And the book People of Lie was written by M. Scott Peck. He wrote The Road Less Travel. And he was a psychiatrist. And what happened is he got converted to Jesus Christ because he met evil people that could not be explained by psychology. It's, a, it's an amazing book. And if you've been abused, or if you have someone that is dark, read it. it. It is powerful. People will lie. There's five characteristics of an evil person. First of all, they lie. And that lying brings confusion when you're with them. They lie. They bring confusion. They scapegoat. It's never their problem. They appear as angels of the light. They're not just bad. They look good. And that's what makes it even worse. People think, oh, wow, they're really good. I love your mom. I love your dad. They're amazing. And they're evil, which is the way I said that's funny, right? But mm mm-mm. And fifthly, they murder. They go for your soul. The Holy Spirit does the opposite. Speaks truth in Jesus Christ. Right? Lifts up. Jesus, did he scapegoat? He was the scapegoat. He became sin. He ate our sin. Jesus is the angel of light. And the Holy Spirit is. So that's revival. Now, John 1 Is an amazing book. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's an amazing book. It takes us back before the history of time. And we read this in verse 14. The Word became flesh. The amazing thing, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus came. That's what Christmas is. Do you know how amazing that is? In the beginning of time, God came. He was in the garden, and he created Adam and Eve, and he walked with them in the middle of the day. There was communion. They spoke. There was no barrier. He said, here's life, Adam, this tree. Here's evil. Here's death. Eat this. Don't eat this. Guard the garden." There's evil out there. We don't read that, but that's why he had to guard the garden from evil. He didn't. He chose wrongly. And ever since, the world's been clouded in darkness and death. And then Jesus clothed him as an act of grace. Blocked the way into the garden, and God lived up there again. And with Noah... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why was Noah righteous? Noah was a righteous man. He was the most righteous man on the earth. But if you read the phrase before it, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, then he was righteous, always in that order. God still was up there, even though the ark was a place of sanctuary. With Abraham, God came down and met him several times. And as as Jesus says in John 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, saw it, and was glad. Jesus makes the statement, before Abraham was, I am. Moses, God came down and tabernacled. And Moses said, show me your glory. And he got to see the back of God, right? And it was stunning for him. He came out and he glowed. And he covered his face because the glowing was so strong, the Israelites couldn't look at it. God spoke to David, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he's looking up at the throne of God, and the cherubim and seraphim are flying around, and he goes, Whoa, 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 I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. But he doesn't just get convicted by the glory of God, he gets converted. In his own gifting, as God takes that coal, and he's a prophet and applies it to his lips, An amazing encounter. Yet, God never came and stayed. That's Christmas. That's amazing. It is not boring. We should be excited about it. And you know what? You and I get bored with Christmas. And we take God for granted. And we commit practical atheism. And we live as as if he's not really there. Oh, you know, Jesus is our foundation. And by the way, this series, right, cast the characters. I cheated. The title is, we beheld his glory. So the cast was us. True. But the real cast of characters is the Trinity. Right? Father, how did Jesus get born anyway? That's not good English, but whatever. The Holy Spirit, right, was the father in every moment. And where, I mean, the Holy Spirit, yeah, the Holy Spirit literally was the father. He came on Mary, right? Mary's the mother, God, man. The Holy Spirit was there. The Holy Spirit was there at his ministry. The father sends the son. He is always sending the son. And that son took flesh. That is an amazing story. Stunning. I don't usually quote poetry, but I'm working on it. Elizabeth Browning, Earth is crammed with heaven, every common bush of fire with God, yet only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around eating blueberries. C.S. Lewis said, the greatest miracle in his book, Miracles, was he came. Dorothy Sayers, I love Dorothy Sayers, says this. From the beginning of time until now, the fact that he came is the only event which ever really happened. We may call this doctrine doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating, Satan did. We may call it revelation. We may call it revolution. We may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is left to be exciting? Are you excited about the birth of Christ today? Forget the Christmas trees. Karen and I had this big, not argument, did we, babe? But discussion. Because I grew up with my grandfather going to Youngstown, Ohio, and they had this tree that was all metal, like silver metal. And there was a light that like rotated red, green, blue. That was my Christmas. It was horrible. So I get, we marry, you know, and I go to her house, and it's an artificial tree. And my wife is incredibly, an incredibly good steward. So it's not one of those high end like fake trees, where it really looks like a fake tree. It's an average fake tree. But brave, I loved it, Karen, I, I loved it. So this year, I got, I got to pick a tree. I'm learning, you know, I'm learning, y'all. I got to pick a tree. It was live. And you know what? We all got allergies, even the dog. It's a nightmare. We're sneezing. My dog's scratching herself. Where did we get this Christmas tree thing from? My attention's. Thinking about Christ every minute, I'm thinking about the tree every minute. Sneezing. Next I don't know why I told that, but next year, next year, we're going back to an artificial tree. Not only did he come, that's amazing, he became. He became flesh. That's the miracle. Jesus was a prophet before he came flesh. He's in the, what does Hebrews say? God long ago spoke through the prophets in many portions and in many days. But in these last days, God spoke through his son. He made him heir of all things. And in that one passage of Hebrews, Jesus is described as prophet king but he's also, the rest of the book talks about how he's a priest. Jesus becomes God very simply. He's God in the flesh, because God is the only one that can pardon sin, right? When you sin, I, I can say I forgive you, but I can't say you're absolved, right? I might say that, but it's not right. Only God can do that. But the problem was, we can't save ourselves none of us can be perfect we can't as luther says say the lord's prayer without sinning we need to repent of our repentance so jesus becomes man and in that moment he doesn't he becomes us like us human that is disgusting for god y'all i don't want to be human i can't wait to heaven I can't wait to be like Jesus, fully perfect, only able not to sin. The Bible says the glory that God has given Jesus, he has given to us. That's heaven. That's glorification. That's the end of salvation. But Jesus became man and so continues to be God and man, two natures. Fully God, fully man, in one purpose. And as man, he takes our sin, he becomes our substitute, and he dies for us on the cross. But he also gives us back something else. He doesn't just take away our sin. What does he give us? Righteousness. So before God, the reason God can pray, we can pray to God, and here is the reason the Holy Spirit literally can dwell within us. Is Christ now? Quote. This is by Chesterton, one of my favorites too. Right in the middle of all men stands enormous exception. Jesus is like anything, unlike anything else. He's the final thing, like the trump of doom. Though he is a piece of good news. He's nothing less than the loud assertion, it is nothing less, salvation, that the loud assertion that this mysterious maker of the universe, of the word, has visited us in person. The gospel declares that really, even recently, right in the middle of historic times, there did walk into this world the original invisible being, about whom the thinkers had made theories and the mythologists had made myths, The man who made the world. That such a higher personality exists beyond all things has always been implied by the great religions. It has always been implied by the great myths. People believe in God. All kinds of people. All kinds of gods. But no God. Nothing of this sort has ever been implied in any of them. It's simply false to say that other sages or heroes had claimed to be that mysterious master and maker of whom the world has dreamed and is disputed. Not one of them has ever claimed to be anything of this sort. Not one of their sects, not one of their schools has ever claimed to be him. The most religious prophet ever said that he was a servant of such a being. The most most a visionary had ever said was that men may catch glimpses of his glory. The most a pagan ever said was that he was there at creation, but the creator was present at scenes where he talked to tax collectors, where he walked in the Judean countryside. Christ became man that we might become like him. No story like that story. No story like that story. And Jonathan Edwards, as a result, talks about the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. Fully God, fully man. That's a contradiction. I shouldn't say contradiction, but that's messed up. How do you put that together, right? I mean, the Gospels are weird. There's nothing else like it because Jesus is God and man, and we see that no other place. And the reason reason he is that The reason he empties himself, he didn't empty himself of godness. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by taking us. That would be like us joining. I want to say this in a good way, okay? But let's just think about it in our mind. If we joined ourselves right now with every human sickness, every infirmity, and that became us, We would not cease to be us. We would just add a bunch of other infirmities. You with me? And let's just think if we added all the other infirmities that on people that were ever there of all time, that's what Jesus did when he became. That's what he does when he goes to the cross. That's why any sin that's in a person, even evil people can be saved, although I've never seen it but they can't. No one's too far from God. Here's what Edwards says. In Jesus meet infinite highness and infinite lowness. In Jesus, infinite justice, but infinite grace. In the person of Christ, infinite glory, lowest humility. Infinite in Jesus, God and man, two diverse excellencies, sweetly united, There meet in the person of Christ the deepest reverence toward God and yet equality with God. In Christ is the worthiness of good, the greatest good the world's ever seen, the perfect good, and yet the greatest patience under sufferings of evil. Perfectly good, yet he became evil on the cross. We don't even want to say that. It sounds heretical, In Christ, meet self-sufficient. He has everything within himself, and yet he has entire trust and reliance on God. In Jesus Christ is infinite distance. He's transcendent. He's that being that is above there, and yet infinite condescension. He comes near us. In Jesus Christ, divine justice, purity, truth, And yet he never suffered so much from divine justice as when he offered himself up at the cross. His holiness was pure. It was illustrated. And yet it shone forth in the most in the end of his life, in his sufferings. He never, never during that time when God forsake him, he never knew holiness at that moment and yet he was the most holy being. Perfect. He never was so dealt with as unworthy as in his last sufferings. Hated, scorned, and yet it's in his last sufferings that he displayed the most love. Do you get it? Y'all, do you get it? I mean, no, we don't get it. I don't get it. If I got it, there'd be more revival in my life. We don't get it. And if we say we get it, we don't get it. And what revival is, the reason we need to pray for it, is that we, it's just simply that supernatural pouring out of God's blessing of increase of grace and increase of truth so that we become more like him. And in the end of the day, we walk in truth, stand in grace, and overflow with love. So, finally, I want to look at Jesus as we've seen that he came and he became. I want to look at him. Just him. What does it mean that he's full? That means he has everything. That he's not empty. That everything that ever was that's good and pure and known is in him. There's nothing that we can get apart from him. Everything we have is from him. If you are empty today, don't self-medicate. Don't choose the seven deadly sins, because every time we sin, we move away from God. And the end of life, the end of salvation, is that he would be the firstborn so that we would be the second, that we would be born again, right? Isn't that the end game? That we would be children of God, and it's children of God that we would live like God, and that we would live for God as sons, no longer as orphans, now as children, walking in faith and truth. And because we, of his fullness, we've all received, what? One blessing after another, grace upon grace. Now, grace is a religious term. We don't use it. Let me ask you, when we say grace, why do, who even came up with that name? For me, it's more, I never thank them for the food. I just go off and wander. Like people that, like they say, you know, you're not going to thank them for the food. Oh, yeah. I just start praying. But saying grace, what does that mean? Why do we use that term? I don't know. I'm just asking you. We don't know what it means. But I know this. If you're a child, the number one thing you want in life is favors, right? Favor, favor, favor. Do me a favor. Because you know, as children, we really don't deserve it. I mean, that Santa Claus thing, you know, you better watch out, naughty or nice, you know. And then he gives you a present or coal. My Aunt Daisy, God bless her, they had coal in their basement. And I'm telling you, she didn't like people like me, kids like me, because I was too active. I had a stocking, and there was coal in it. (laughs) Swear. I'm messed up to this day. (laughs) Haven't found a psychologist that can treat that. It's called coalism or something like that. But you know what? When Jesus contrasts grace and truth, he contrasts it with the law. The law is not grace. Now, God can use it for grace, but it's not. Because what the law does, Weakened by the human face. Weakened by us. Is it kills us. It makes us self-righteous. We're good. It makes us despair. I can never do this. Or, worse of all, it makes us reject God. I'm not about this. Paul says, I get up in the morning. The things I want to do. I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Can any of you relate to that? All right, let's talk about noon. You know, I go to lunch or I go to dinner or I go home and, you know, I'm thinking five minutes to meditate about my wife and I'm going to really be nice and ask her questions and not go over to the refrigerator or read the paper. I don't do that. Look at my phone or whatever. Turn on the TV. I'm going to, it'll be her time. I get in the door and what happens? I turn on the TV. Things I don't want to do, I do. Right? And Paul, that's living. And what what Paul's doing is he's looking at the law. He's a Christian. He's looking at the law. And what he's doing is he's living under the law. And in the end of the day, if you live under the law, you're not under grace. And you say, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death. And what's the answer? thanks be to God, there is now no condemnation that those are, those are in Christ. For the law, for the Spirit of God, the literally Holy Spirit of God has set us free from the body of sin and death. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And that freedom means we're free to be us. We're free to be children of God. We're free to grow in grace. What about truth? Truth comes to us. When Jesus is full of truth, it simply says... The first thing he tells us truth about is what? What does he tell us truth about? He came to reveal. No one has seen the Father at any time, but Jesus, the one and only, has made him known. Who's the first truth he tells us about? I got to quit this quick because I know you're tired or something. Who is the first truth that Jesus tells us about? God, right? Say it. God. That was awesome. God. No one can know God apart from Jesus Christ. You can't. You know enough about God, because you see him in, in the heavens. But you know what man did? Even though they knew God, they didn't believe him. They pushed him, and they changed the truth of God for a lie, because they wanted to worship themselves, the creature, rather than the creator. I'm going to close with two stories, putting it all together. John 4 is my favorite story. Anybody know what John 4 is about? There's a person there called a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. And she's at a well. And she's there at noon alone. No one carries the water out at noon but no one wanted to be with her. She had no community. She didn't know God. She had no purpose in life. Her purpose was eking out a little bit of satisfaction in another relationship, and she'd had five that weren't working, the last I remember. She came to the well full of despair. She came to the well full of falsehood. She came to the well a graceless soul. Empty. Always thirsting, but never drinking. Always eating, but never satisfied. That was her. And Jesus takes a detour. Remember? He had to go through Samaria. No Jews go through Samaria, it's like an unclean place. He goes to Samaria, and to the disciples' amazement, Jesus sends him away. The reason he sends them away is because what what he was about to do would have scandalized them. He comes in, and he starts out by asking the empty, graceless, broken-down, despised, rejected woman for something. The God that had the fullness of all things, the God that never drank, he was only thirsty at the end, but he was always satisfied before that, so he became a man. Then he got thirsty and hungry. He asked her for a drink. And she said, why are you, a Jew, asking me for a drink? Do you remember? Jesus goes right for the juggler. If you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. Well, wow. sir, where can I get this water? Jacob's well. Where can I get this living water? I have to come back again and again and again. This is as good as this water is? That wasn't for show. I was thirsty. As good as this water is, Jesus was promising her more. OK, sir, give me some of this water. that I don't have to come back. Now remember, Jesus is here. And what's he, what's he here? He's full of truth and full of favors with me? That's who he, That's who is standing before her. Any relationship you ever see Jesus, both of them are together. They're not separate. They're the same. Heads and tails. So, give me some of this water. Then he flips it and in the truth of God is exposing her and he says, go get your husband. Whoa. Uh, he exposes her big sin. Mm. Hate when he does that go get your husband. And she stumbles around. I don't have a husband. It's like, no, you lie. You lie. And when you lie, you don't get grace. You miss it. Well, you get grace because God comes and speaks us and convicts us. But you move away from it. It hurts the possibility. And Jesus gently brings her back and says, no, 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 no. Yeah, you've He's sarcastic. You've answered this really well. But You've had five husbands. She goes, wow. Sir, you're not just an ordinary Samaritan preacher. I see that you must be a prophet. Our fathers worship over there. You worship over here. Who's right? Have You ever heard that before? Talking about Jesus Christ? Hmm? Have y'all? Every conversation you have with a non-Christian, 90% of them, that'll be brought up. Jesus says, You worship what you do not know. I worship what I know, what is truth. Salvation comes from the Jews. And then, an amazing thing, he reveals himself. Before Abraham was, I am. But before he said that, he said, Dear woman, The one who worships after me must worship in spirit and truth. The spirit of grace, when we worship God, we worship full of the Holy Spirit in truth, standing in grace. So what does that mean for us? In John 1, Jesus came into the world and there were three responses. The first one was they didn't recognize. That's our job and mission. Jesus was sent. To display his glory. And our job in evangelizing is is to tell people about Jesus. And to show people the difference he makes in a life. That's for people that don't recognize him. Right? And the reason we recognize in the first place is A, someone told us. But B, the Holy Spirit changed us. But there's also people that reject him. The saddest story in John is that even though he did all these miracles for years, for centuries, under, underneath to the Jews, his own people rejected him. Now, you and I can commit that practical atheism. We, on a daily basis, cannot recognize him in what he does. In all his beauty, and what he's doing in my life, is what, and what he's doing in our lives. And so the first response for us is that we commit more and more to recognize Jesus. Intentionally, in the word, in quiet times, and throughout the day. But also, we can reject Jesus. Every time we sin, we do. We don't sin against the law. We sin against the person. You with me? When we sin, we don't just sin against some rule. We sin against the person. That's why we can grieve. When we sin, we grieve. We quench. We move the spirit away. And we resist, literally, God. But to all who receive him, to all who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God, born not of human will, not of a decision of man, but of God. Revival. It's what I'm praying for. Kelly and Howard have been used to revive in our hearts. We've seen it among the hardest of pain. May continue to use them. May we continue, but may we hunger for it and pray for it. Because y'all, I've been all over the world and I'm going to all kinds of churches. I don't hear anybody praying for revival anymore. Do you? Do you? I want to pray. I want to start a prayer group here. I do. Let me close with this story. Um, At Christ's covenant, we used to have um, a Christmas pageant every year. And some of you guys, some of the elders that were here a long time ago, we were in this gym. And it was the worst sort of look and play you've ever seen in your life. Nobody was a good actor. Nobody could sing. It was just terrible. It was just It was bad. It was just bad. And I was new to the church, not just that church, but any church. And I'm like, wow, this this is just not good. And yet we grew. It was amazing. The story's told where um, Fred is at this Christmas pageant, and he's studying his line. He only has two words. But he's really nervous about it. And its he's the innkeeper. Do you remember what the innkeeper did? Anybody know? Like Jesus, you know, Joseph and Mary, they knock on the door. That would be a good cast, the innkeeper. But they knock on the door. And what does the innkeeper do? No room at the inn, right? Well, Fred was not that smart. So they didn't want to give him those many lines, right? It's true. It's a true story. I think he's from Philly. Anyway. So he had two words be gone. Be gone. So he practices it over and over again. You know, be gone. He's using flair, he's using passion. And so his word, he, he studies for four months, he studied this thing. And so Joseph and Mary come up. They knock on the door. We need a room at the end. He says, be gone. They leave. And he says, wait, come back. That's revival. That's revival. Asking God to come back. Because even today, though, you might feel that he's far from you. He's in you. He's tabernacled in you. Let's invite him back, not just individually, but corporately. Not just in this church, but the churches in Charlotte and beyond. Not just in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Y'all, we need revival. One nation under God and God we trust. We need to get back to that day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we (sighs) We thank you. We just thank you. Sometimes we don't even have words. There's no other stream, as C.S. Lewis said. There's no other food, because you're the bread of life. There's no other grace in heaven, because you're the ultimate favor. There's no other truth, truth that sets us free. There's no other life, or light, or door, or path, or any other thing, but God the Father, you are that, and you've manifested that through your Son, and Holy Spirit, you apply all those graces. So when we leave this room, we pray that we will be grace givers. We will do multiple favors for others, and we will speak truth, the kind of truth that sets people free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.